Hello again, and welcome to another episode of the Lux Sci Podcast, a podcast where we put the fun back in science by exploring the intersection of science and luxury. I'm Dr. Lex, PhD, infectious disease expert, and today, interviewer. That's right, I have a special guest with me today. You've heard me reference him at the end of every episode, Demos, who happens to be my audio engineer, and more importantly, my husband, and he's going to talk to us today about what has become the ultimate luxury item right now, space tourism. Demos is not only my husband and an excellent audio engineer, he also has a PhD in electronic engineering with a focus in power systems from Virginia Tech and has some professional experience in the space industry. I won't tell you which company he works for because we don't want to uh, reference that right now, but just trust me when I say he's been spending the last six years in this exact area. So thank you for being on the show, Demos. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. So... I guess the first question is, what got you interested in space travel and in wanting to be part of this industry? When I was a kid, I enjoyed looking at books from Isaac Isimov, specifically books about the solar system and about the planets. And I always thought it would be great to come up with a way to get from planet to planet. In 1981, when I was still quite young in elementary school, I got to witness the space shuttle Columbia take off. And it was a huge event for our entire elementary school, watching that momentous occasion with all of my fellow students, thinking how exciting it was that we were going back to space. How does your professional experience in education help you now in your day-to-day job? I you know, alluded to that you have a background in electrical engineering and power systems. So how does that help you with the work that you're doing today? It's mainly due to the fact that energy systems and energy management are the entire story about how we get to space, whether it's the power coming out of the rocket engine that's pushing the vehicle. There are all kinds of systems on a rocket, including the hydraulic systems that are powered by electric motors to move the various surfaces of the rocket, because while the rocket is still taking off, it's sort of an aerodynamic vehicle like an aircraft. But once it goes high enough into the atmosphere and into space, then other systems have to take over to control the rocket's movements in space. That choreography of electrical systems that uh, transfer responsibilities to different systems, which require batteries as well as the rocket engine itself, uh, all sort of fall into the category of power systems. Cool. So we have watched most of the recent launches from the various space tourism companies in this house because we have a vested interest in it. And one of the things I've always been curious about is that a lot of the launches talk about the Carmen line and that being the definition for when you're in space. Can you talk a little bit about what the Carmen line is and how it got to be the established boundary for space outside of the Earth's orbit? So the Carmen line at about 62 kilometers is a general appreciation for where the atmosphere is thin enough. It's sort of a line that says, I'm not an airplane anymore. I'm also far enough away from Earth that I can start to think of myself as orbiting the Earth instead of just flying over the Earth. At some point, we have other lines referred to as low Earth orbit and lines that um, even uh, go beyond that. You might have heard of geostationary orbits or other orbits that are much further away from the Earth. But the Kármán line sort of represents that first 
high altitude step where you see the blackness of space and you can understand that you are indeed so far away from the earth that other laws of physics are in charge of how your vehicle operates. That's really interesting. I actually hadn't thought about it that way, that you have to make a transition there between airplane flight and then you're truly in space flight mode at that point. Do you call it an altitude? Oh, yeah. It's still referred to as an altitude. Okay. So like for low Earth orbit and geospatial orbit, do you know how far away those are? Yeah. So low Earth orbits sort of are a band of about 100 to 120 miles, even to 200 miles above the surface of the Earth. High Earth orbits are more of geostationary orbits. These are orbits that allow you to circle the Earth, but also synchronize with the exact rotation of the Earth. And the result of that, you are still standing over the exact same spot, or if you will, flying or rotating above the same spot over the Earth, even though you're still in orbit and the Earth just happens to be spinning below you at exactly the same speed. So various altitudes get you to those convenient locations. It's very lucky for us that allows us to do things like set up uh, space satellites that can allow us to use things like GPS, which is a perfect example of a system that has to stay in exactly the same space as it orbits the Earth. All of those require different altitudes. The International Space Station, for example, is a low Earth orbit. And satellites that can take photographs of the Earth, like the planet constellation from Planet Labs, is another example of a low Earth orbit satellites. There's not much atmosphere. There's a tiny bit. There are a few molecules here and there of atmosphere that can interact with a low Earth orbit satellite. Uh, once you get closer and closer to the Earth, one of the problems you have is that the atmosphere can exert a tiny bit of drag, which means that if your Earth orbit is too close, you can eventually degrade and fall back into the Earth due to friction. So if you're in low Earth orbit, do you have to keep a certain altitude to avoid degrading? Or can you boost, give yourself a little boost with a engine every once in a while to make sure you don't fall into that degradation pattern? Absolutely. Having an engine gives you the ability to maintain orbit friction from the Earth's atmosphere slows it down. The uh, concern, however, is, is anything that you take to space has a large amount of mass penalty, mass that you have to counteract with a larger and larger rocket engine. When you carry a lot of propellant with you into orbit, you now sort of set a clock, which means that eventually you're going to run out of propellant. And when you do, your orbit will then degrade and you won't have any way of recovering from it. The higher the orbit, the less the chance mm. that, your, mm -hmm. that your degradation will go, take you back to the Earth. However, that means the less interesting planetary science you can do if you're photographing. That actually brings me up to my next question of how a rocket breaks out of Earth's gravitational pull. You know, I've uh, gotten the privilege to come visit you a while ago and see uh, one of the rockets and they're massive and I imagine they weigh quite a bit. And so how do you propel that much mass out of Earth's gravitational pull? And how much power does that require? When we think of getting out of the pull of Earth's gravity, we think of a rocket engine accelerating us away from the Earth's surface. When we do that, the Earth's surface leaves our rocket at something that we call an escape velocity. And escape velocity is 
a speed at which you need to reach so that you can guarantee that you don't fall back to the Earth. Before I answer the question, I might note that space tourism for now isn't really about going away from the Earth, mm -hmm. except mm -hmm. for the one mission that occurred, the mission that was set up by SpaceX. With, oh, to go with, to the space yes, station. Yes, yeah. that, that discovery mission uh, did allow for four days of uh, a of orbit, which was pretty exciting. But as far as getting away from the Earth, if you can get up to about, let's see, this number is 2.4 kilometers per second. Let's see. Well, what are some? From the moon. Yeah. Oh, that's from the moon. Yeah, you're right. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> from the Earth, kilometers per second. Wow. You 11. really have to go fast. 11.186 kilometers per second. And just again, to, to reference that from the moon, which has almost a lot less of a gravitational pull. It's 2.38 <laughs> kilometers per second. You have to get, you have to be quite fast to get. And is that, so escape velocity then, that's to, to fully push past all of Earth's atmosphere and gravity and to be kind of free floating out on your own in space. So we don't think of the atmosphere as much for escape velocity as we do the planet's gravity. In order to get away from a planet, you've got to reach a velocity, a minimum velocity that, that guarantees that you'd go into orbit mm -hmm. or you, that gives you the option to go into orbit later on mm -hmm. if you wish. Yeah. Once you achieve escape velocity, then you can choose your orbit at your leisure. And um, those orbits can be surprisingly fast. Um, we're talking about numbers along the lines of a 16 to 25,000 miles an hour. So how much, just re in relative speaking, without any specific specifications, about how much power does that require? If you're thinking about maybe pounds of thrust. Um, well, what we think about when we think about power is um, sort of the power to weight ratio. Um, if you're taking a heavy item up to space, you're certainly going to need a lot more power than if you take a lightweight item mm -hmm. up to space. To give you sort of an, a range of how powerful the engines are, there are engines that can do the job at just a 10 or 15,000 pounds of thrust all the way to the Apollo program where almost 10 million pounds of thrust to Earth's orbit, but then to be able to begin a lunar injection orbit. It really just has to do with the mass. If you had an extremely lightweight rocket, you could launch one from your backyard if you could get the fuel to last long enough. What are options for fuel for these types of engines? Because clearly you're not going to go to the gas station, put some gasoline into a rocket engine and get that amount of power out of it. I don't think know that gasoline has that enough power conversion rate. Specific energy. <laughs> Thank you. The uh, rocket scientist has the correct wording for this. <laughs> has enough specific energy to get the rocket out of the gravitational pull. So what are some options for rocket fuel? Well, I, I wanted to sort of smirk a little bit because you said you can't go to the gas station to get the fuel. One of the most popular rockets flying right now from SpaceX uses exactly that kerosene yeah, but, and uh, and liquid oxygen. Yeah, well, I was going to say kerosene's not gasoline. I mean, they're in the same derived yeah, but, from yeah. the same source material, but petroleum fuels are an option. So what are some other options that could generate that amount of power? You can use of hydrogen and oxygen, the components of water in a cryogenic form. Li hydrogen and liquid oxygen work especially well in space as a fuel. Uh, hydrogen isn't terribly energy dense, so mm -hmm. it um, doesn't in, end up giving you a lot. And then there's finally another option, which we're talking about more and more as we think about interplanetary space, and that is 
nuclear rockets, where we flow liquid hydrogen across a bed of, of fissionable material. So I have a family background that has allowed me to be on some aircraft carriers, which are often, and submarines that are often powered by nuclear reactors. And I think that there's some you know, general resistance to the idea of nuclear power among the population. So can you give me your take on why that would be a good and safe option for an interstellar rocket ship? One of the great options of nuclear power is the ability to use thorium bed reactors. Thorium is a relatively new concept. Instead of concerning yourself with um, contaminating the environment with a potential rocket explosion or failure of a rocket system, thorium is not the type of fissionable material that has terribly poisonous radioactive daughters or radionucleotides. So it's relatively easy to collect if there was ever an accident. You can go critical and create an enormous amount of heat and energy or release an enormous amount of heat and energy. Thorium bed reactors represent probably the best option for a safe way to introduce nuclear propulsion. And, and do we have the technology now to make that possible? Or is that something that needs to be developed? NASA has demonstrated a number of nuclear-powered rocket engines, uh, including a, a if you ever research the Minerva project, there's some excellent YouTube videos showing Minerva <laughs> rocket engines that are operating and being tested in full scale. Cool. So to switch focus a little bit, what what about the astronauts, right? So the whole point of these space tourism flights is to provide the opportunity for people who have a certain amount of expendable income to, to experience a space flight. And so what forces are acting on the rocket and on the astronauts during that flight and what are the astronauts likely to feel as the flight is going on? Upon launch, the acceleration is surprisingly low. The rocket is only slowly hovering above and is quickly picking up speed only because otherwise it would crash back down to the earth. Some of the largest rockets are surprising to watch in that they take what looks like an enormous amount of time to get away from their launch pads. Mm, okay. However, that speed is quickly made up for, right. uh, that slow start is quickly made up for as you start to approach several thousand miles an hour at a very low altitude. So do you have an idea of the G-force push on the astronauts? I do. The maximum G-forces that astronauts would see would be around three and a half times the amount of Earth gravity. So if you weigh 150 pounds, imagine that you weigh more like 500 pounds. And so things like lifting your arms off of your chair is almost impossible to do during a takeoff. However, the toughest G-forces are on re-entry when you come back down from space and start to hit that thick molecular atmospheric layer around the Earth. That is when you would actually start to experience a fast deceleration, mm. and then the G-forces can be up to five times. That's really interesting. I, I'd always assumed that you'd get more G-force on the way up, and I didn't really think about the way down. Gravity is very powerful. Obviously. <laughs> so five, six minutes of weightlessness at the top, right, before you have to strap back in and head back down. It depends really on the arc of your travels. If you go straight up and come straight down, one of the things you're doing, of course, is you're coming straight down, noting that the Earth is spinning at a thousand miles an hour at its tangential velocity. So you do take a little sideways trip if you're planning on coming back straight down to where you came from. Mm -hmm. That trip represents probably the minimum viable trip to space, which would be about three to four minutes of weightlessness. 
So you are an electrical engineer, as I've said before. So what are the biggest concerns of, about the electrical components on a rocket during spaceflight? Vibration, G-forces, heat, and extreme cold. When we send rockets into space, we will carry with us either a liquid hydrogen or a mm. liquid oxygen mm -hmm. along with a fuel. And in the case of the SpaceX rockets, you'll see a large amount of liquid oxygen and also liquefied helium which is used to replace fuels as they burn off. You have to put something back sort of in, in the back end, yeah. otherwise the tanks would collapse yeah. in the sort of a vacuum. All of that puts enormous amounts of stress on the electronics mm -hmm. because now your electronics are operating at temperatures that are mm -hmm. very rarely seen. And all that in a tiny space of a rock. Interesting. All of the companies that are doing space tourism at the moment are really focused on reusable rocket technology to make it cost effective. So what do you think is the biggest challenge for making a rocket reusable? Some of the big challenges of making a rocket reusable come down to the engine design. The engines that we've used up until the past 10 years have been one-time use engines. They're extremely powerful. They're effective at what they do. And no one really has to worry about designing them to last more than two or three attempts. There are There's something we call hot fire, where you operate an engine briefly to verify that it's going to work. And then you send it up and make go. Making engines last and run over and over and over again. And a lot of people try to make 25 missions, 10 missions. 50 missions even mm. on the same engine. That involves inventing new metals, mm -hmm. new alloys, alloys that don't warp and don't change their crystallographic structure when exposed to the high temperatures that can exceed the surface of the sun. Wow. So last question for you. Um, what do you think is the appeal of these space tourism trips? And would you go up in space if given the opportunity? I think given how much effort has gone into assuring the safety and the um, design quality of these systems, I think it's a safe bet. There are always dangers involved with mm -hmm. any activity. I remember as a kid being wowed by the motorcyclists that would go round and round inside the cage steel ball <laughs> at Ringling Brothers Circus. And I thought that looks dangerous. Mm -hmm. Rocket engines are pretty scary. It's pretty much a controlled explosion mm -hmm. uh, that lasts for as long as it takes to get you into space. And the fuels you're sitting on are very powerful and there's nothing stopping a rocket from exploding quite violently. Um, however, a lot of these rockets come with some fascinating features. For example, uh, a, a space company called Blue Origin features a small solid rocket motor in its crew carrying capsule that can fire off and uh, separate from the rocket in case there's a, a massive catastrophe. But it's all about timing. Well, yeah. But so, so what do you think the, the overall appeal is? Like why this fascination all of a sudden with, you know, privatizing space flight and people going up is uh, kind of, I guess, one big last adventure? Or... Well, it's the next great thing. I think space flight has been an inspiration for so many people. If you think about how many people talk about some of their greatest memories, we're watching astronauts go to the moon and walk around on the moon. And, um, and people's fascination with moving vehicles from uh, the beginning of time, whether it was chariot races from Ben-Hur or, or, or hitting... or, uh, or might not know, be the historical reference or, they're looking for. Or, or the, the first ever speed ticket given in 1892 for a vehicle you, going eight miles an hour. Where did you pull that fact I out of? I got that one from Robin Hood Snacks. But. I was going to say, that is a great trivia fact. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> and and then really, um, I think the thing though that solidified it was Orville and Wilbur Wright and the the race to, to take flying to an era of pretty much tourism because that's what it was. Early yeah. days of flying were were just what rocketry is now. And so I think the expectation is is that we'll think about it in the same way All fifty right. years from now. Well, I always thank you at the end of my episode for doing my audio engineering, and I'll thank you for doing this episode and. And also for uh, the interview, this was really fun to have you on. Thank you again for listening to the Luxi podcast, a podcast to bring some fun back into science. Our theme music is Harlequin. Sorry, I, I. Our theme music is Harlequin Mood by Birdie. You can find us um, at luxipod.podcastpage.io or on social media at luxipod. Please share, please subscribe, please very much leave a review in uh, the Apple iPodcasts or in wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we also have a, another very special guest that wants to say hello as well. Hi. And what do you like about talking to the microphone? Well, it's because it's really cool. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs>